Hello, everybody. Thank you for tuning in. From all of the iconoclastic teachings of Jesus, and there are quite a few, not one is so contrary to human nature and thus difficult to obey as his command to love one's enemies. So rarely is this genuinely carried out that we are fortunate to only see glimpses of this played out in our daily life. And I think that if we're honest, most of us really don't have enemies in the physical sense. We all have people who annoy us, friends who irk us, and bosses that we don't really care for. But enemy is a strong word. But what if you really did have an enemy or enemies, plural? What if you had people who sought to degrade you and use you and only kept you alive because you were worth more as a slave than you were dead? How would you think about them? How would you speak about them? And how would you actually treat them? In this amazing story, we see how a young atheistic Roman Briton named Patricus ultimately answered this question and in so doing became Ireland's greatest patron saint. If sainthood was solely determined by loving one's enemies, then Patricus surely qualified. This is a story of redemption, forgiveness, and service. Like many stories that God writes within his people, it's unpredictable and dangerous, but ultimately good. Before we get to know Patricus and better understand how this man would change the spiritual makeup of Ireland, we first must grasp how God changed the spiritual makeup of this young man's heart and mind. Episode 26 starts now. Deep feelings and endless thoughts of revenge captivated the young man's mind. For two weeks now, all he had thought about was the retribution he would inflict upon his captors when he got free, if he ever got free, something he knew would probably never happen. Just a fortnight ago, the 16-year-old had been enjoying his fairly sheltered life as a Roman citizen on the west coast of Britain, near the small town of Benveta Bernay. From all the comforts that came with having a father who was a local magistrate and living in a country villa with servants to do most of the work, mindlessly playing on the beach close to his home was only one of many leisurely activities. But in a flash, without any warning, all the happiness and comforts were replaced by fear and hardship when Patricus was attacked by a gang of professional Irish slave raiders. It was efficient, violent, and traumatic. Rome had begun its decline a decade before. As a consequence, its ships no longer secured the western sea surrounding the Celtic islands. Without Roman rule, other ships were free to sail unmolested. As such, no political authority was concerned about Irish kidnappers. During the one-day journey across the sea and now in iron shackles, all Patricus could think about were the stories he had heard as a child concerning the heathen culture of the Irish. While he never thought that they were all true, how they would eat human flesh, shamelessly commit incest, and smear the blood of slain victims on their faces, he now seriously questioned them. 
As his kidnapping alone revealed, the Irish were not considered barbarians for nothing. And although Patricus claimed to be an atheist, or just apathetic to Christianity, he couldn't help harboring bitterness towards his Christian parents, and ironically, their God. The timeless question swirled in his maturing mind. How can a loving God allow evil things to happen? The fear of being forsaken incessantly bore upon his fragile conscience too. For Patricus really was alone. Most of the slaves taken by the Irish were women and children as most men were not easily secured. Patricus wasn't a boy, but he wasn't quite a man. And yet, it was in this time of his life against the backdrop of Irish captivity that God would forge something powerful within him. Something so unexpected and so beautiful that it would not only change his destiny, but the destiny of an entire pagan country. But that was in the future. In the present, the very start of the third century, the only destiny Patricus was in charge of was the 100 sheep he was made to shepherd in a cold and wet place somewhere on the west coast of Ireland. In coming to this new land, it was like traveling back in time 400 years. Although the primitive accommodations were difficult to get used to, it wasn't long after arriving that Patricus's anger surprisingly simmered down into a place somewhere between ambivalence and acquiescence. In the many days and nights that Patricus spent alone, the growing boy began to consider God, his will, his plan, and his love for the lost. But as he drew nearer to God, the shame of his past sins weighed heavily upon him. One sin grieved Patricus in particular. With some time though, he finally arrived at being at peace with God. He wrote about this process. After I came to Ireland, I watched over sheep. Day by day, I began to pray more frequently. And more and more, my love of God and my faith in Him and my reverence for Him began to increase. After six years of captivity, the 22-year-old was now a young man and had been forged into someone new. He was a new creation of sorts. The faith of his parents and grandparents had become his own. Fasting and praying were regular practices in his new life as a Christian. Looking back, Patricus wrote, God used the time to shape and mold me into something better. He made me into what I am now, someone very different from what I once was. Before I was a slave, I didn't even care about myself. And then on one unspectacular night, as Patricus was falling asleep, God clearly spoke to him in a dream, saying, You have fasted well. Soon you will be going home. Confused by this, as Patricus knew it was nearly impossible to escape, and that the New Testament taught slaves to be obedient to their masters, he didn't immediately respond. But the next night God spoke again, saying, Behold, your ship is ready. Putting aside all questions and, and difficulties surrounding how a successful escape could actually happen, and there were many, 
Patricus succumbed to the conviction of God's leading. Simply put, if God spoke, then Patricus had to obey. But because no ship sailed to Britain from the west coast of Ireland, he would have to make the 200-mile trek across the island. The arduous journey would take over a month to complete and would be slow and dangerous for anyone making the trip, let alone an escaped slave who had to avoid being seen. How he would get on the ship and under what circumstances were all unknown to Patricus. But as God called him to obedience, Patricus believed God would somehow provide a way. And he did. After getting on a ship and sailing for three days across the sea and walking through Britain with the sailors for a few weeks, Patricus finally arrived to his home and to his family. They took me in, their long-lost son, and begged me earnestly that after all I had been through that I would never leave them again. But although no one knew at the time, that was just what he was going to do. Once at home, after the many sweet celebrations and reunions with both friends and family, life for Patricus slowly returned to a comfortable normalcy. But that leisurely time didn't last for long. God spoke to Patricus again in another dream. Although this time it wasn't a call to leave Ireland, it was a call to return. The Irish were in much need of the gospel of Jesus as their island was cut off from much of the many other progressing civilizations. But it was the dream he received of the Irish people calling him back to walk among them that truly convicted Patricus to once again accept the strange but clear call of God. Once he resolved to preach the gospel to the people of Ireland, to the very people who kidnapped and made him a slave, Patricus believed he needed to undergo a theological education. Not only did he need this time of academic preparation to mature his faith and knowledge of the Lord, he needed some ecclesiastical weight behind him, as he would be evangelizing alone in relatively uncharted and hostile territory. Within the church, Patricus most likely started as a layman and deacon progressing to priest and finally being ordained as a bishop. After these years, Patricus, a more mature Christian servant, was ready to make his way back to the cold and wet lands of Ireland. Now, not unwillingly as a slave for men, but willingly as a slave for Christ. While Patricus learned much about Irish civilization during his previous six-year stint, it seemed much had changed in the time he was away. As a slave and shepherd, Patricus was relatively distanced from the local wars and overall spiritual darkness of the landscape. The culture now awaiting him would be filled with feuding kings, political druids, and witches, many, if not all their pretensions, being opposed to the knowledge and rule of a Jewish rabbi who claimed to be the Son of God. Thus, as is common in the Kingdom of Heaven, many of Patricus's first converts were social outcast, women and poor. In general, most tribal kings across the land were not receptive to the Gospel or the Briton who brought it. 
Yet some were indifferent enough to allow churches to be built on their land. Season after season, Patricus continued to travel throughout Ireland, preaching the gospel to anyone who would hear and planting house churches where he was received. Slowly and with much toil, Patricus was spiritually building the first body of Christ in Ireland. And as the years came and went, so did the decades. As an elderly man, the white-haired Patricus had now begun to baptize the sons and daughters of those parents he had converted years before. And as every generation presents its own unique and special challenges to the gospel, this one did as well. But from all the opposition Irish culture could throw at the British bishop and to the Christian faith in general, the most hurtful and violent assault came not from their pagan hands, but from the hands of Christian tyrants from Patricus's own homeland. By 460 AD, Rome was on its last leg. The empire was nearly all but collapsed. Britain was under attack on every front and from every direction. From the north and west, the Irish and Picts were pushing their raids south. From the east, German warriors were amassing in numbers. And from the south around London, Saxons and Jutes had even begun building settlements. All these attacks from the outside were too much for the Britons to effectively and systematically handle. In this unprecedented time of political and social disarray, the old inhabitants of the island found themselves being protected from the foreign intruders by men of British Roman nobility. As such, these men were Christian, although most were purely nominal. These few leaders who scraped together local armies and defended their communities against external threats became known as tyrants, warlords that protected their people with little to no oversight. For generations, the west coast of Britain was seasonally attacked by the barbarians from Ireland. But now tyrants, those specifically living on the west coast, not only wanted to force their enemies back, but exact retribution for the years of unanswered assaults upon their people. The tide had turned. During springtime, when the sea separating Britain and Ireland was calm, one peculiarly brutal tyrant named Caroticus began his offensive attack. The mission of the voyage was clear. Dock in an undivulged location, locate an unassuming clan, kill the men and capture the women and children as cargo for slaves. The assignment was done efficiently and quickly. By the time Patricus was informed of the attack, Caroticus and those taken prisoner were already at sea. Upon hearing the news, Patricus found the place where his beloved flock had been attacked. It wasn't far from where many of them were baptized on Easter the day before. Some of the men of the group who had been murdered lay rigid, the oil on their forehead from being anointed still fragranced the spring air. Likewise, a number of women and children who had been baptized were certainly kidnapped in their baptismal robes. There was no lack of signs that these new converts traveling home were Christians, but that meant nothing to Caroticus and his mercenaries. Patricus was in between despair over the murder of his people and rage that it was brought by the hands of Christian soldiers from the place of his birth. In response, 
Patricus penned a letter to Caroticus and his men asking for it to be circulated among the churches in Britain so that the prisoners might be released. The letter was a heartfelt plea for divine justice, a stinging rebuke to Caroticus, and a petition for the church in Britain to excommunicate him. But after all of his attempts to pick up the pieces of his scattered flock, he couldn't change the fact that a small part of his clergy had been kidnapped and murdered. In the end, Patricus's only real and lasting hope was to be reunited with his spiritual sons and daughters in the next life, something not too far away for the aging bishop. In the later years of his life, Patricus wrote two letters. The first was titled Confessions, an account of his life and ministry, and the other was a letter to the soldiers of Caroticus, a plea for his people to be returned to their home. In both epistles, we see the heart of Patricus, his deep humility, and the true love he had for the Irish people. Nearing death in his confessions, Patricus asked the bishops in Britain that he may be permitted to die among his flock in Ireland even if it meant being buried in an unmarked grave. He wrote, If I have ever done anything worthwhile for the God I love, I ask that I might be allowed to die here for his name with these converts and slaves, even if it means that I won't have a marked grave or that my body is torn apart piece by piece by dogs or wild animals or that I serve as a meal for the birds of the air. I know if that were to happen, I would gain my soul along with a new body on that day. We will undoubtedly rise again like the sun in the morning, like the sun, Jesus Christ, our Redeemer. As such, the place of his burial is unknown. And even though we celebrate his life on March 17th, we only know that Patricus died sometime around 490 A.D., While much of the details of Patricus's life are missing or obscure, the impact he made in Ireland and the world for that matter are crystal clear. His love for God and the people of Ireland, those considered barbaric and subhuman by many of the time and those who kidnapped him as a boy remains an amazing testimony of what God can do with an obedient servant. As a young slave, Patricus was forced to shepherd sheep but by the grace of God, he ended his long life as a willing shepherd of men. Like a true watchman, he protected and fed his sheep until the end. Patricus's example to us should move us into a deeper place of love and service to all people, even those who seek our harm. Through it all, the kidnapping, the escape, the return, the trials, the hurt, and the suffering Patricus never considered it a burden, but rather a gift. As he ended his confessions, Patricus leaves us with these words. My final prayer is that all of you who believe in God and respect him, whoever you may be who read this letter that Patricus, the unlearned sinner, wrote from Ireland, that none of you will ever say that I in my ignorance did anything for God. You must understand, because it is the truth that it was all the gift of God. And this is my confession before I die.
So what a story we have in the life of Patricus, who we know now as St. Patrick. And before we get started, just quickly want to say, parents, teach your children the real history of Patricus, that he was a slave, that he, that he didn't return evil for evil, that he forgave his captors and he lived his life serving them. May the first thing that you and your children think of when you hear anything about St. Patrick, may it have nothing to do with drinking green beer or wearing green and pinching people, but let it be about God's grace. We need heroes of the faith and our children do as well. So if you, if you have children, please teach them the, the real history of who Patricus was. So the main and obvious takeaway from this story is about forgiveness. And we see it in, in three different accounts and the order in which they appear is important. So we're just quickly going to run through these three different accounts of forgiveness. How did Patricus respond to being kidnapped as a young man? From all the ways that he could have reacted Hostility towards the Irish, anger at God, anger at his parents. He, he could have reacted uh, numerous ways, but what did Patricus do? He looked inward and he drew nearer to God, not further away. And this brings up the, the simple point that one can only draw so close to God before their sins get in the way. So Patricus considered his, his own sins and his own wrongdoing, his own failures before a holy God, before he held up the sins of his captors. Everyone has a splinter in their eye, but your splinter has to be dealt with before you deal with others. And so the first account of forgiveness in this story of Patricus is, is, is Patricus receiving it. He received God's grace through Jesus' death and resurrection, and he was made right before God. And it was after this, after the Christian faith became real to Patricus and really became his own, that he could extend this forgiveness and love for the lost to others. And he did that. And so the second account of forgiveness in this story is Patricus offering it to the very people group that kidnapped him. Jesus said, you have heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you, that you may be children of your father in heaven. We mentioned in the intro to the story that loving one's enemies remains one of the hardest commands of Jesus to obey. And it is. But it might be even more problematic and demanding to forgive one's friends or family and to forgive those who are fellow Christians. In the life of Patricus, we witness the horrible account of his flock being wiped out, not from heathen barbarians, but by a Christian people. Now, this is a, an extreme case where Christians most if not all were only nominal they inflicted a hurt even death upon other Christians 
but it points to the unwelcomed reality that a lot of hurt in the Christian life often comes from our friends and fellow Christians. Having been a Christian for over 20 years now, I've received that kind of hurt and I've also given it. I've had to apologize and I've had to forgive. Sheep hurt when they bite. Paul was, in the New Testament, we see that Paul was hurt by Peter. And Paul and Barnabas had offenses at each other over John Mark. And I think that Jesus was more hurt by Peter's denial than by Pontius Pilate's. We expect, to an extent, rightly, that those who we call brother and sister in the family of God will be the least to sin against us. We aren't normally surprised when those on the outside disregard us, hurt us, don't understand us. So when that trust or expectation is not met or broken by our own brothers and sisters in the Lord, it makes the hurt and disappointment that much more real. And in turn, it's much more toilsome to forgive them. So the third account of forgiveness we see in this story is how Patricus ultimately extended grace to Caroticus and to his soldiers. As difficult as it is to forgive an enemy, it's sometimes much more difficult to forgive a friend or a brother and sister in the family of God. Especially when the wrongdoing is so severe and on top of that, the, that the offender doesn't even ask to be forgiven. When this happens, the question that we are often left with is, how do we forgive them? We know that we should, but how and by what means do we offer it? John Piper wrote this, The suffering of Christ was the real punishment and recompense of God on every hurt you have ever received from a fellow Christian. Therefore, Christianity doesn't make light of sin. It does not add insult to our injury. On the contrary, it takes the sins against us so seriously that to make them right, God gave his own son to suffer more than we could ever make anyone suffer for what they have done to us. If we go on holding a grudge against a fellow believer, we are saying in effect that the cross of Christ was not a sufficient recompense for the sins of God's people. This is an insult to Christ and his cross that you do not want to give. In the end, Christians must forgive all people just as Christ has forgiven us. Jesus said, for if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Paul said it too in the book of Ephesians. Paul said to be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Forgiveness. Forgiveness offered to our enemies and to our family can only be offered if it's first been received from Jesus. St. Patricus displayed this, and my prayer is that we would as well.
Hey, thank you again for listening. I hope that you found this podcast to be engaging, encouraging, and enlightening. If you did, please leave a review and and rating as that helps put the podcast out to more people. If you know of someone who you think would benefit from this episode or podcast, please tell them about it and share it with them through our website. A couple of things I want to announce real quick. Uh, The first is that I've written about a I've written about half of a three-part series on the life of Patricus. But instead of writing from a, a, bio, a biographical point of view, as we've done here, I'm writing uh, what's called a faction. It's a mix of fiction based on fact. I guess some people call it faction. And it's a three-part uh, series written from the viewpoint of one of Patricus's kidnappers. Um, it's... It's an amazing story. I'm working on it, but it's a, it's a lot of work. So I'm just putting it out there. If, if that is something that you would like me to, to finish up and produce and, uh, and put out there, I would like to know. So if that's something that you would like to hear, uh, let me know. If I get, I'll just do this. If, if I get five written reviews of the show in the next week that mentions uh, Patricus, I'll go ahead and, and finish the series and, and begin recording that, that story soon. Um, also, we have a new website. That's what I've been spending a lot of time on these last couple months. Uh, I would love for you to go check it out. It's salvationandstuff.com or salvationandstuffblog.com. It will take you to the same website. Uh, things that are new on the website, you can see what we're about, our mission, our nature. You can meet our, our board. You have access to all the episodes. You can check out our t-shirts and coffee mugs. You can contact us. You can read and write reviews of the show. But the main feature of the website is our new blog. And it has all the podcast in written form, plus other smaller articles I've written that aren't on the podcast. But it also has numerous contributors, and that's the coolest part. There's a number of people who are who are contributing to the website and to the mission of salvation and stuff. So please go check that out. It's at salvationandstuff.com or salvationandstuffblog.com. Thanks again. I appreciate you all, and I'll see you next time. Bye.